Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. It's uh, again a privilege to be able to uh, proclaim God's Word this morning. And uh, a little bit out of the ordinary, we've been going through 2 Corinthians and uh, the past two weeks, past two Sundays, we've been uh, looking at giving, chapters 8 and 9 of Second Corinthians, Paul deals with uh, giving and uh, very rich and important passages. And I just thought I would take the opportunity to uh, do something of a topical sermon on giving and tithing because uh, it is such an important subject, uh, but also because there is so much confusion and abuse when it comes to money uh, in the contemporary church. So I think those are the two extremes. The one extreme is there are those that every, every Sunday they talk about money. So I've been at churches where you know, they'll sing a whole lot of songs and then they'll have a 15-minute sermon on giving and then they'll only get to the actual sermon, which is often shorter than the sermon on giving. Um, so there's that one side, and as we saw last week, that side is motivated by greed. So you must give so you can get more. Uh, and that, of course, is an, an, an ungodly motive. The other side is, uh, maybe you've heard this phrase, there's three things you don't talk about in public, sex, money, and religion. And uh, that's exactly wrong. The Bible says we should be talking about all of these things. And uh, trust that heritage will be a place where we do uh, talk about these subjects because they are the three most important subjects in our lives uh, and areas where uh, there is the most sin committed. Uh, we need to have a right understanding of who God is, what salvation is. Uh, we need to have a right understanding of sex. And you can go and listen to the Song of Solomon series from the website. And we need to have a right understanding of money. So the devil has been very good at breeding ignorance and confusion when it comes to the topic of money. So this, as I said, is going to be slightly different, a topical sermon. Uh, please get your Bibles in front of you. We are going to be bouncing around the Old and New Testament, but I really want you to see the passages so that you, you, you really get them into your heart and you can see I'm not making this stuff up um, also, you're going to need to put your sort of theology hats on. Uh, so really concentrate. Um, uh, I hope it will be informative and helpful and God-glorifying as we go through this, this theme. So the way I'm going to look at it is uh, through the lens of what we call biblical theology. So biblical theology is following a doctrine or a theme through the whole scriptures uh, from Genesis to Revelation and see how it develops and how it shifts, especially with the coming of 
Jesus Christ. Uh, Why is it we don't sacrifice animals anymore? Uh, Why is it we're allowed to enjoy bacon? Uh, All of these things have to do with biblical theology. Uh, Why is there a shift with the coming of Christ? And so that's what I want us to do today. So we're going to see the development uh, and the teachings regarding money and tithing as they go through Scripture. So before the Mosaic Law, if you're not familiar with the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, God uh, creates everything in Genesis, creates Adam and Eve, and uh, they sin, and that's the entrance of sin and death and corruption and misery into the world. Uh, God promises, though, to send a Savior, someone who's going to make things right. Uh, We go through Genesis, we keep thinking maybe this guy will do it, maybe Noah will do it, maybe Abraham will do it, but we're always let down. But God chooses a nation for himself from Abraham. Uh, This nation grows and eventually ends up in in bondage in Egypt. God delivers them and he he makes a covenant with them and he gives them a, a whole lot of laws to keep. And that's where he gives them the Ten Commandments, probably the most famous of Uh, all the ethical commands in the world. And that's what we call the Mosaic Law. But before the Mosaic Law, and the Mosaic Law has a lot of teaching when it comes to money and tithing, before that, it is clear that giving and tithes, or sacrificial giving and tithes, are uh, taught. Even though they're not written down, God must have given instructions. So right at the beginning, you can see with Cain and Abel, uh, they bring sacrifices Uh, Abel brings the first fruit. He brings the lambs uh, from his flock. Uh, How did they know to do that? God must have instructed them. And and so they gave sacrificially to the Lord. Uh, As we go through the story, we come to Genesis 14 and we see Abraham, after battle, coming to a man called Melchizedek and giving tithes to him. So tithes means a tenth. Okay, So that's what it means, 10%. And so he gives 10% of all the plunder to this man, Melchizedek, who is a picture of Jesus Christ. So uh, sacrificial giving, tithing, is not some uh, innovation in in the Mosaic law. It was already there all the way through. The patriarchs, uh, they understood to give sacrificially, to give a tenth. But when we come to the Mosaic law, uh, that's in Exodus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy deal with, with the laws as well. Uh, what we find is that there are actually three tithes. So maybe you just thought there was one tithe. People had to tithe 10%. And uh, that was that. Well, actually, there were three tithes. Uh, there was a tithe for the priests uh, who ran the temple, who taught the people, who did the sacrifices, um, There was a tithe for the needy, for the poor, for the widows, for the strangers or the foreigners in Israel. And there was a tithe for feasts. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus, who lived uh, around AD 70 when the the Jerusalem temple was destroyed, he, he mentions this custom of paying three tithes. Uh, And the way it worked was that you had to tithe 10% every year to the priests. You had to tithe another 10% every year for feasts. 
And every three years, you had to tithe 10% for the poor or the needy. So you would end up giving about 23% of your income every year. Okay, so it wasn't just 10%. As many people think, oh, I need to tithe 10%. In fact, in the old, in the Mosaic law, people gave 23 and a third percent every year. That's what they were supposed to do. Josephus says this, in addition to the two tithes, which I have already directed you to pay each year, the one for the Levites, that's the, the priests, and the other for the banquets, the feasts, you should devote a third every third year to the distribution of such things as are lacking to widowed women and orphan children. And so there's the, the tithes for the poor and the, the needy. And so what we're going to do is going to look at each one of those categories and then see how they develop and what happens to them in the new covenant. Uh, because the principles... Uh, continue all the way through. Uh, for example, uh, under, under the, the Mosaic Covenant, they had a tabernacle, a, a, a place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and that was the religious center for Israel. Uh, Solomon then builds a, a temple, a permanent building, a permanent dwelling place in Jerusalem. And the temple is the focus for Judaism, for Israelite worship. It is the place where God's presence is manifest. But when we come to the New Testament, we find that Jesus says he's the temple. And so with the coming of Christ, there's a shift. We're no longer looking for a temple in Jerusalem. We're no longer looking for a structure, uh, a special place where God's presence is especially felt. Uh, Jesus Christ is the temple. All of those Old Testament pictures were pointing to to him, And if you're a Christian, you're part of Christ. You're part of that temple. Peter says you're a living stone, uh, no longer a dead building. Now we're part of that temple. That's just an example. I could give you many other examples of how these themes in the Old Testament develop. But the principle remains a temple is a place where you meet with God. And if you want to meet with God, the only way is through Jesus Christ. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. You don't need to come to this venue. You can be right there in your pajamas, sitting on the couch with a coffee in your hand, and you can meet the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, because he is the only way to know God. Uh, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Lord Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but through me. And so that principle, if you wanted to meet with God, you had to go to the temple, the tabernacle. Now, you want to meet God, uh, you have to go through Jesus Christ. You have to come through him. There is no other way. Uh, and every human being should want to know God. Uh, we were created for Him. There is no fulfillment, no satisfaction, no eternal life outside of knowing God. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in, in God. Your, your heart is so massive and so huge, you can fill it with the whole universe. It will still not be satisfied. Only God can fill our hearts and so if you want to know God, it's through Christ. But this principle follows throughout Scripture. And so we're going to see how these ties develop uh, in the New Covenant. Now the first thing I need to say is that the word tithe or the teaching of tithing uh, is not an explicit teaching in the New, New Testament. Uh, the word is mentioned, Jesus mentions it. Uh, when he rebukes the Pharisees because they're very strict about their tithing. 
They would even tithe their, their herbs, but they, they were not merciful or gracious. Uh, the Lord says they'd forgotten the weightier matters of the law. But there's tithing is mentioned, but he's referring to still the old covenant. The writer of Hebrews mentions tithing with respect to Melchizedek, uh, Abraham offering tithes to Melchizedek. But as a teaching, the New Testament does not teach you must give 10% or 23 and a third percent. Uh, it doesn't teach a percentage. Uh, and that's important. Uh, we'll see that we are to give proportionally. So some of you might be thinking, oh, I just need to give 10%, and you're getting away with 10% when you should be giving a lot more. Uh, but it's also good news for those who are battling and not able to give 10%. There is also that freedom. We saw last week the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Uh, but let me say, just because the New Covenant doesn't mention the tithe, it doesn't mean you, you should be aiming for less than 10%. Uh, it doesn't mean you should be saying, oh, well, that's great. It's not mentioned. So, you know, I feel really happy giving 1%. And so that's where I'm stopping. Uh, the Bible, the New Covenant doesn't know anything like that. Uh, the standards for New Covenant believers are far higher than those for Old Covenant believers. Just think of polygamy. Polygamy was, was allowed by God for his people in the Old Testament. The patriarchs were polygamists. David was a polygamist. And the Lord even said to him, I would have given you more wives if you had wanted. God allowed it. In the new covenant, it's not allowed for God's people. God doesn't say, oh no, it's the new covenant, there's more grace. You can even have more wives and more husbands or anything like that. Because now we have the Holy Spirit in a special way, the requirements are higher. Or think of divorce. It seems as though divorce was allowed more easily in the old covenant as opposed to in the New Covenant. A powerful passage, just to reiterate this, is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. The writer of Hebrews says this, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he goes back to the Old Covenant. He says, uh, there were certain sins that were worthy of the death penalty. Uh, if there were two or three witnesses you would be put to death. That's under the old covenant. And so many people think this. They say, you know, I don't understand. The old covenant, God was really nasty, but in the new covenant, God is loving. You know, uh, there's, there's this massive difference. Uh, well, actually, we've got it the wrong way around. I want to put it that way. God is always loving and kind and merciful and holy, uh, but he judges according to the amount of light and grace that he gives. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He said, if you sinned in the old covenant, it was bad. If you reject the gospel in the new covenant, how much worse? Okay? It's a, from the lesser to the greater argument. And so I would argue again, in light of the coming of Christ, that we are new covenant believers, we live on this side of 
all the prophecies. Christ has come. The Spirit has been given. You shouldn't be striving to see how, how little you can give. Uh, well, I don't need to give 10% because the Bible, the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing. So, you know, I'm happy with 1%. Give proportionally. Give generously. That's what the Bible would clearly teach. Okay. So that's our understanding of the word tithe. So anyone who stands up at any church and says, you need to tithe and give 10%, uh, be careful because the New Testament doesn't say that. It doesn't say that we need to tithe a specific percentage. But again, if you go away leaving that thinking, oh, well, I don't even need to give 10%, that's fine. That would be against the spirit of the new covenant where the expectation is higher. More, we should be more holy than Old Testament Israel. We should be more gracious, more kind. We have the fruit of the spirit in a special way. We should be more generous, striving for that. So let's go through these three tithes. And uh, the first one is the tithe for priests, which is in Numbers chapter 18, verse 21. Numbers chapter 18, verse 21. You can turn there. Numbers 18, 21. To the Levites, I have given every tithe, a tenth, 10% in Israel, for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. And then jump down to verse 24. For the tithe, the tenth of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. So it's in return for their service, it's payment. Uh, the priests... The Levites were to receive 10% of the nation's income. Uh, it was to be given to them for their, their work. Um, that's a clear teaching. That is a tithe in the Old Covenant. Under the Mosaic Law, the priesthood was to be given a tenth. What about in the New Testament? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So... Uh, we are going to look at some passages in Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. First Corinthians 9, verse 7. Paul here is arguing for support for those in vocational ministry, for pastors. So look at verse 7. A uh, whole lot of rhetorical questions. Answer is, is no one. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? No one. Or who tends a flock without getting some of the, of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? Here he refers back to the Mosaic law. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So uh, they would use oxen to crush the grain so that they could get rid of the chaff and get the grain. Uh, the teaching in the law was, you mustn't put a muzzle over the ox. You should allow it to eat some of the grain because it's doing hard work. And so it should be able to benefit from its work. And then Paul says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher 
thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Then look at verse 11. Paul says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, so those who sow spiritual things, those who bring spiritual teaching and preaching, have sown spiritual things to God's people, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. See Paul's argument here, and notice how he refers back to that Old Testament tithe. He says, those who served in the temple got their food from the temple. The priesthood, the Levites, those who served, got their living from their serving. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Galatians 6.6, 6, I'll just read it quickly to you. says, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. You see, there's an obligation placed there. Uh, to support those who sow spiritual things, those who are vocational ministers, those who are vocational pastors. Uh, There is an obligation to support them financially. Uh, You you might think, yeah, but um, maybe the church has a lot of money and things are going well. Uh, And so, you know, I don't really want to give here because there's another ministry or another need somewhere else. But really, the teaching in Scripture is where you are fed is where you should be giving, first and foremost. Uh, You see, it's analogous to having someone work for you and you don't pay them their salary. You don't provide for them. You don't look after them. They're putting in the work. They're pitching up. They're doing all these things. Maybe it's a gardener at your house. Uh, You don't say, well... You seem to be doing quite well. I see you arrived in a car, so I'm not going to pay you for this week's pay. Uh, No, you continue to pay that person. You wouldn't like to be treated like that yourself. Here's the principle. Paul is saying, is it too much? You You need to support those. In fact, in Galatians, he says, you must share all good things with the one who teaches. And in one sense, I hope that Heritage never has a lot of money. We're not a bank. We're not here trying to store up funds and see, you know, well, (laughs) let's see how much money we can get in our bank account. God blesses the church so we can do more things. We can get more vocational ministers. We can plant more churches. We can help other churches. You will see we always, when there's an excess, when we have extra money, we're looking for ways to use it. We want to get a larger building. We believe that... uh, We'll see more people converted. All of these things. We're not a bank trying to just... If you see there's a lot of money in the account, don't think, oh, well, things are going fine, therefore I don't need to give anymore. We have lots of plans, lots of churches we want to plant, lots of missionaries to send, lots of uh, things to do. Uh, The fields are wide under harvest. We need to see more laborers. That's what the Lord Jesus said. Pray that the Lord would raise up laborers. We need more full-time Pastors and evangelists and those who go out and proclaim God's word. Uh, So uh, we are certainly not trying to just build up a whole lot of money. We want to use it to expand God's kingdom. 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, 
especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Notice he's repeating what he said in 1 Corinthians 9. Whatever double honor means, at the very least it means uh, those who serve well in ruling and preaching and teaching should be well paid, well looked after. And of course I'm talking about all things being equal. Uh, There are churches where that's not possible, and I praise God for heritage, for the generosity and kindness, but those coming up and those who might join the finance committee and become deacons need to have this mindset of being generous. There are churches, there's a well-known phrase, uh, where they say, Lord, you keep the pastor humble, we'll keep him poor. Okay? Uh, that's an ungodly attitude, totally against the spirit of what the New Testament teaches. Uh, and so uh, it's not to say what, what's the, the, the least we can get away with, but to be generous to those who labor and uh, rule well and labor in preaching and teaching. Last passage on this section of support, as we see the Old Testament principle of supporting the Levites, the priesthood, how it now through Christ becomes to support those who preach and teach the gospel. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says this to the Philippian church. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, your, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. What an indictment against the churches. Imagine the Apostle Paul, they didn't support the Apostle Paul. This is what partnership means, this uh, partnership in the gospel. We saw it in, in Corinthians already, 2 Corinthians. It's financial. Uh, it's not just that you, know, you pray together or, or, or fellowship together by just talking, but it's financial. He said, no church entered into partnership with me except the Philippian church. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. What a testimony to this church. They looked out for the Apostle Paul even when he wasn't in Philippi. Then verse 17, Paul says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. See what Paul is saying here? He says that it's not that I'm after your money. See, Paul's motive wasn't greed. He said he understood that when the churches are generous and support ministers, it's to their account. It increases to your credit. And so, of course, this is, this is uh, very strange for me to be preaching on this. It seems to be very you know, self-serving. <laughs> like pastor saying that you should pay me well, uh, uh, which is what the scriptures are saying. But uh, why is that? If it was just because you know, I'm just greedy and I, you know, like I need a jet and uh, something like that or a Bentley... Uh, that's ungodly. My motive must also be because when a church is generous and supports those who labor in preaching and teaching, supports those who study God's word and faithfully expound it, it's, a, it's, a, it's to your credit. It's to your account. And then it goes on. Look at this. 
Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And then look how he describes them. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, your giving, the end is not the ministers or the staff here or the pastors here at Heritage. That's not the end. Your giving is to God. That's how you have to view it. It's the same as when you go to your workplace and you work for your boss. Remember what Paul says, you're working for the Lord ultimately. Your giving is not just for the pastors, it's to the Lord. It's a, it's an, a fragrant aroma to God. One commentator, Hawthorne, notes this. He says, of first importance is Paul's remark that although he himself was the immediate recipient of their generosity, the ultimate recipient was God. With this statement, he lifts their gift from the level of mere mutual courtesy and compassion and looks upon it in its relation to to God. At the same time, he enunciates an important principle, namely that whatever is done for the servant is in reality done for the master. Remember, that's what Jesus said. See it as I'm giving to Christ. We've seen in in chapter 8 and chapter 9, over and over again, what's the root of generosity? It's the gospel. It's Christ. Though he were rich, yet for your sake he became poor. When you give... When you give generously because you've been fed and it's right to give for the work that's been done. But you give to Christ. That's what he's saying. It's it's to the master. Whatever you do for the servant is for the master. Whatever is given to a child of God is given to God himself. That must be your ultimate motivation. Not I really like the preaching. He's a really nice guy. I'm going to give. No. You're giving to the Lord. Giving to to Christ. It's a fragrant aroma. Where does that come from? If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you'll know that when the sacrifices were, were given, uh, not sin offerings, but when you were giving a, a, a sacrifice, there were different types of sacrifices, but one of them was uh, really a, an, you're offering yourself to the Lord. When you brought an animal to say, Lord, I just want to consecrate my whole life to you, and there it's burnt. Okay? The whole animal is burnt. Not just roasted nicely or something like that. It's burnt. Uh, you know, it's not a humanly, not a very nice smell. But to the Lord, the scripture over and over again says it's a sweet smelling aroma. Fragrant offering in the nostrils of God. God loves it when people give themselves sacrificially. You bring pleasure to God because you're behaving like Him. Isn't that what God did? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave the best of heaven. He gave His Son. He gave Himself. And so when you do that, you're imitating the Father. You're imitating Christ who gave Himself sacrificially. Brings pleasure to God. And so the first tithe tithe for the priests, then we see, is to support those who labor in ministry. The second tithe was for the needy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 28. Deuteronomy 14, 28. 
At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the foreigner, the, the, the stranger, the pilgrim, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns, or the orphans and the widows who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you you do. And so they had to care for the needy within Israel. God's covenant people, the idea was that there shouldn't be a needy person in Israel. And uh, very sophisticated laws were given to make sure that the poor were looked after, widows and orphans and sojourners were looked after. What happens to that principle in the New Covenant? It, it continues. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Notice that phrase, not a needy person among them. Uh, now this is not arguing that we should all go and sell all our possessions because it might last us a couple of years, but then we would be all, all be needy. Uh, and we'd all be begging on the street because nobody would have anything. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, it says that uh, no one said that anything that belonged to him was his own. That's all that they said. Later on, in, in Acts chapter 5, Peter says to Ananias, Was it not yours? It belonged to you. So this is not against you know, private ownership. It's simply the way we treat the things God has given us. Okay? Uh, we understand it doesn't belong to me, it's from God. Remember, when you're giving, it's not, oh yeah, I need to give 10% because that belongs to God, but 90% is mine. No, all of it is from God. Everything you possess, you need to see it, it doesn't belong to me. That's why the scriptures say, lend, not expecting in return. You lend to God's people, you should be willing to lose it. Don't lend something you're not willing to lose, and if you're not willing to lose it, then... Uh, one needs to examine one's heart. And so what was going on here? Generosity. They cared. There was not a needy person among them. And so in the new covenant, we also need to care for widows and orphans and the needy, as we've spoken about before. Uh, uh, just a, a side note. For some people... Uh, I think they've overinterpreted what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. You remember he, he talks about giving and he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is, is doing. And so uh, the idea of secret giving. But in the context, Jesus is talking about spontaneous giving. When you give spontaneously, that is, uh, again, a wonderful mark of, of being like the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure we've all felt like that. I've felt like that sometimes, you know, when you, uh, 
maybe I, I get a McDonald's or something like that and I'm in the car and uh, I'm eating and then I see that there's someone who needs it more than me and then I start to weigh up I'm really hungry you know I, I, yeah I, oh, I don't know but he's probably on drugs I won't give it <laughs> uh, you see what's happened um, what have I done? I've, uh, there's no spontaneous giving there. It's revealing my heart. So saying, there's someone who's hungry. They need it more than me. Here. I'll be fine. I can go 40 days, apparently, without eating. Okay? That's, that's the idea. That I'm not like weighing it up and what's going to this and this. It's spontaneous giving. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You see, the Pharisees, when they gave, they blew a trumpet. They made a big song and dance about it. It's also that you don't do that. You're not arrogant drawing attention to yourself. But don't take this to mean that, you know, your giving is totally secretive and nobody must ever know. Throughout Scripture, here the apostles knew what everyone was giving. Chapter 5, you see it again. They knew what people were giving. I'm not saying you have to give and so you have to tell how much you're giving. I'm simply saying the principle of knowing over and over again in Scripture, generous people are pointed out. We, we, we say we need examples in every area. We need examples of generous people. We're told in the Gospels, who was it that supported the Lord Jesus Christ the most financially? The ladies. Book of Acts, Lydia. Wealthy lady gave her house with a church. The Bible doesn't say, no, you know, it's all secret and nobody must know. No, need examples of generous people. Things done in darkness are not good. There should be a culture where we can talk about, how's your giving? Brothers, meeting with one another, keeping one another accountable. Giving is an issue. To say, how are you being generous? Are you budgeting? Are you working at this? Are you looking? Not in a legalistic, self-righteous way, of course not but in love for one another because this is such a privilege that we can share in caring for the needs of others. And notice where they laid it, at the apostles' feet. We don't have apostles anymore, but they brought it to the church. That is a place of primary giving. Support for ministers, the place where you are fed is the primary place of giving. We have deacons who understand the needs within the church, uh, if you want to give to other ministries or, or non-profits or charities, that's fine. But let it be over and above your giving here. This is the place where you give. Uh, this is the place where there is wisdom. Okay? Uh, I, I don't give to any non-profits anymore when I find out all their headquarters are in Geneva and every, every NGO, every person that works for them drives a new Land Cruiser and Pajero and... So much wastage um, for these non-profits. But I know here we're looking for opportunities. Which church can we help? Which faithful church? We're not giving to cults or something like that. We're giving to those who proclaim the, the gospel, looking for legitimate needs. And also the idea of, you know, that, that principle of give a man a fish, he'll eat for one day. Teach a man to fish and he'll eat for the rest of his life. Our deacons follow that principle. They don't, we don't just splash money out. Principles. Let, let us help you learn how to work with your money. We will help you. Nobody will starve. Nobody will go without. But we want to help you to, 
to understand there's tremendous wisdom employed. Your money is not being wasted or used in a flippant way. And it's not your money, the Lord's money, uh, that you return back to him. Now, uh, this issue of supporting the poor, because remember there's a transition from the old to the new covenant. In the old covenant, Judaism, had, had, as I said, had quite a good system and way of caring for the poor. Uh, they didn't always follow through on it. The Lord Jesus has a lot to say to the Pharisees about the way they don't look after the widows. Uh, but now, people are being converted. Orphans and widows are being converted. What's going to happen? How are we going to care for them? And there are problems that arise. You can see this in, later on in Acts. And that's where deacons, the, the office comes from. The apostles in chapter 6 create this office to care for the needs of the church. Uh, so this principle continues. But it also continues to support other churches that are needy. That's what we've seen. In fact, in chapter 8 and 9, that's really the main theme. So, provision for the needy, needy individuals within our community, but also for needy churches. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, Paul says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people that was in Jerusalem, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will be, have to make, be made. Notice what he said, each one of you. Not some of you, not just the rich. Each one of you, what must you do? You see, there's some wonderful principles here when it comes to giving. It must be regular, the first day of every week. I'm not saying it has to be the first day of every, every week. It could be monthly, how we get paid, things like that. But regular. First day of the week is Sunday, when the church used to meet, just as a bonus. Uh, some of you might have to deal with people who, who keep saying, you know, we should be meeting on Saturday. Well, it would be pretty strange if they met on Saturday and then they must collect the money on Sunday. That's when they meet, the Lord's Day first day of the week. So regular. Your giving should be regular, should be planned and proportionate in keeping with your income. So not a tithe because you could have a massive income. You could give a lot more but you're just limiting it to 10%. But it should be proportionate in keeping with your, your income. Some wonderful principles here when it comes to to giving. And so again, uh, new covenant community we look to must provide for uh, pastors and those in vocational ministry. We must provide and look after the needy and seek for opportunities to care for needy churches. And then the last one, which I think will blow your mind as it blew my mind, is a tithe for feasts. So to uh, if, you, if you're still in Deuteronomy chapter 14, go to verse 22. If not, turn there. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. <clears throat> uh, this is one of the, to me, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. Now, I've mentioned it before, I think a few years ago, but it's really nice I get to spend a bit more time on it. This is what the Lord says to, to Israel. 
You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. So every year, they need to tithe a tenth. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose, which became Jerusalem, to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So the Lord says, what you need to do is also take a, take a tenth and take it to Jerusalem for a feast, and you and your household will eat all of it. Okay? Have a, have a party. So the title for the sermon, Pastors, Poverty, and Parties. Okay? Here's the party aspect. Uh, then the Lord says, verse 24, And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, so it's too far to travel, you know, to take your animals and all the grain and all of that. He says, okay, well, here's what you can do. Verse 25, then you shall turn it into money. So sell it. And bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you, you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Isn't this brilliant? Uh, I, God says, I want you to put money and goods aside so that you can have a feast. I want you to budget to have a party. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what you think Christianity is. But so many people have an idea of Christianity that is morbid and dull and dreary and legalistic. And it's a bunch of rules. And Christians are people who are just frowning the whole time. And it's those old black and white photos, you know, that's just grumpy old people. <laughs> uh, and then you think that's Christianity. Well, I wouldn't want it to have anything to do with Christianity that's like that. Christianity is not like that. That's a warped view. That's a wrong view. This smashes your presupposition. This is a God who wants his people to delight. Whatever you crave. Meat. Wine. Strong drink. Not drunkenness. But all good things God has given us to richly enjoy. He says, I want you to do this. And look at what it says in verse 23. So it's, this is not just, you know, your birthday party. This is coming to a place with God's people. It's linked to worship here. Look at verse 23. The Lord says, I want you to do this. I want you to budget for a feast. Verse 23. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Isn't that incredible? Have a feast so you can learn to fear me. So if your idea of fearing God is just a slavish running away from some dictator, you're doing it wrong. You're reading the Bible in the wrong way. You're not getting it right. If you don't land the same place the Bible lands, if you don't land at the same place the apostles land with respect to Jesus Christ, you're doing it wrong. The Lord is saying, so it's really feast so that you may fear. What type of fear is this? This is awe and reverence and joy. 
It's the same idea when, when Hebrews says we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. So my Father who loves me, who delights in me, who wants what's best for me. So what does this mean for the New Testament? We don't go to Jerusalem anymore. But in the New Testament, we do find what Jude calls love feasts. And Peter has the same idea as well. These feasts are love feasts. Now, I don't like the term love feast. It sounds like some Charles Manson cult hippie thing. It sounds pretty weird to me uh, just because of what's happened in the world. Uh, it sounds dodgy. Maybe a fellowship feast is a, is a better name. Uh, but uh, as Lela and I spoke this past week and looked at this and, and really seen it more and more clearly in the New Covenant, uh, we don't have time to go to all the passages, but you will see there are often times where God's people would meet and have meals together. We decided we need to do this more regularly. And so once we, we start to gather again, we are going to do this more regularly as a church. Have feasts together. And so if you've got a better name than fellowship feast or love feast, you can SMS it to me. <laughs> uh, look at Acts 2 verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together. So they would go to the temple for their worship. As we, as we gather on the Lord's Day ordinarily. That's what they would do. And then, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And so I think here again, they were having... These meals together as God's people, rejoicing. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This isn't communion. Okay, Communion was when the whole church is gathered. In fact, when you go to Acts 20, it's clear they have communion and then they have a meal together. Separate things. So it's something that we, we want to do. Uh, and notice what it says. The Lord added to their number day by day. I think that this is a, you know, evangelistic as well. When people begin to see what real Christianity is about, the joy in the Lord, rejoicing, enjoying the good gifts God has given to us. Also, it's a way of showing hospitality, isn't it? When we have church fries, which is... a is, is something like this. What do we say to visitors? You're welcome. I've heard testimonies of people. This is just so wonderful. Seeing people from all different cultures just enjoying one another and enjoying a meal together with purity and joy and laughing without being vulgar and rude. Just enjoying God, enjoying His good gifts, enjoying one another. And so I trust that the Lord will use us living this out in, a, in an evangelistic way. Now, maybe some of you are sitting there, you're feeling a bit guilty, saying, but how, you know, there are people starving to death. How can we have a, have a feast? Uh, and that's a, it might be a good sentiment, uh, but you need to be careful. Uh, remember we spoke last time about being guilted into giving. It's easy to make people feel guilty. Uh, and that's not what the, the Bible is about. 
Um, we, we, we need to live within where we live and what God has blessed us with. But we also need to be careful of being a Pharisee because the Pharisees moaned about this very same thing when it came to Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. See, food and drink. Jesus came eating and drinking. Enjoying good gifts. We can enjoy the good gifts God has given us to enjoy. If we were withholding food from visitors and, and orphans and widows in our midst, of course, that's, that's horrific. That, God hates that. That's not what we're talking about. But we can enjoy the good gifts God has given us to enjoy. Food and drink. I love that. I love that the Lord Jesus came. Those are things that I love. Uh, I love good food and good drink. What a gift from God to us. And so here's another thing I want you to budget for. Based on this, what Scripture is saying. And that principle in the Old Testament. You need to budget so that when we gather as a people, or maybe you invite a whole lot of people from church over to your place, you budget for that. Hospitality is expensive. But don't start to budget just for that and then you're not supporting ministry and you're not caring for the poor. It's all, all of these spheres to, to look out for. I said to, to Leila, I want to bring it to Christ and so I'm going to use John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Remember Jesus' first miracle? He turned water into wine. Jesus came and over and over again in the Old Testament it says the eschatological kingdom. When the Messiah comes it will be a kingdom of Good food and well-aged wine. And Jesus comes to the wedding of Cana and he turns water into wine. He extends the party. He gives the best. And Lelo said to me, you know, but you've used that often. You know, try and find something else. <laughs> I can't find something else. And I've had people complain about my love of John 2 before. But it's fine. Uh, at my funeral you can say, I remember Michael. He loved Jesus Christ at a party. Okay. He loved the fact that, that, and I do, and he loved the food and the drink. Why do we go to weddings? It's the food and the drink. That's why I go. Okay. The food and the drink, that's what, even the wedding feast, it's not, it's not all these other things. It's the feast, the food and the drink, to enjoy it, to eat and drink to God's glory. And it points us to that final kingdom. When Jesus says in the Gospels that he will serve us. And so budget for that. 1 Timothy 6.17 in closing. Uh, because I, I'm trying to serve any loose ends. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. As I said last time, we're in the northern suburbs, many of your students, you'll get good qualifications, you'll get good jobs, you'll stay in Johannesburg. We've seen that already happen. God has blessed the church and has grown economically as, as the members have grown. 
And praise God for that. It is easy to feel guilty. But notice what Scripture says here. It doesn't say anything that you should feel bad about being blessed. You should feel bad if God is blessing you and you are not using it for his kingdom. I know people that get bigger cars. Why? So they can give more lifts. People get bigger houses. Why? For status, so everyone can see them. No. So they can do more hospitality, so they can have students stay with them, so they can look after other people. That's the right motive. The issue isn't the money. God has, if God blesses you financially, it's so that you will do good, to be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. And so settle that in your heart now. As I mentioned last week, don't say, oh yes, when I'm rich, then I will start to do that. You know, that doesn't work like that. The patterns we build now are the patterns we carry on with. Start now to, to be generous. Start now to, to give. And let's trust the Lord that he would bless many who would be full of generosity, using the blessings God has given them to, to bless others, to imitate Christ, to use what they've received to do good to others. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word and uh, gone through a lot. Holy Spirit, pray that you would uh, make it clear um, to each one of our hearts. Help us to be a generous people. Help us to, to be a people who give who support those who labor in ministry, who care for the needy, and who budget for enjoying feasts with God's people. Pray that you would help Heritage to be a church like this and that you would add to our number daily that many would be saved. You can do it, Lord. Your arm is not shortened. There is no heart too hard. You cannot break. You saved us, after all. Uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There aren't degrees of deadness. And so please do it. Please use us. Be pleased to use us. Thank you so much already for the generosity of your people here at Heritage. Uh, we praise you for that. But again, may we excel in every way. Uh, that you would receive the glory and may everything flow from the gospel and flow back to you, a virtuous circle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.